Nanita Desai has achieved so much in the last few years that I don't even know where to begin with this introduction. So let's just start with 2019. She was the IFMCA's Breakthrough Composer of the Year, nominated for Best Score at the British Independent Film Awards, and was the composer for Oscar-nominated and BAFTA, Cannes, Biffa and South by Southwest winning documentary For Summer, which features some of the most complicated subject matter a composer will ever encounter. My talk with Nanita was so enlightening, and I genuinely hope that you take away as much from this interview as I did. So with that said, let's get on with the show. Hi, Nanita. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Johnny. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. So can we, we begin with probably quite a, a tricky question, maybe, but in your words, how would you describe yourself as a film composer? <laughs> that's that's a million dollar question. It's, <laughs> it's the hardest thing, actually, um, because it's all about having a unique identity. And I don't know, you know, I am a, I used to say, um, I'm a musical whore. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll write music for anyone as long as they pay me. <laughs> but, um, but I guess I don't like to put into boxes. So I... I suppose you could say I am a media composer. I'll write music for film and television and documentaries and games and and fiction and uh, all sorts of different types of projects. And what is it that you enjoy most about about what we what you do? Um, I love the creative process. I love the procrastination and the prevarication. <laughs> <laughs> but I but I love the research. Um, I love being able to immerse myself into different types of storytelling where I'm learning about different subjects, stuff that I would never normally come across. So I, I think it, it's a, for me, it's a window onto the world and learning about different areas, um, you know, be it with sort of documentary subjects or, um, or different types of storytelling. Um, every, um, it, it's a lifelong learning thing for me. So, so I, I love, putting myself into uncomfortable, creative <clears throat> situations. Uh, it's it's a sort of the, the moment where you dread the beginning of a project because you don't, you've, I, I think, I don't know what I'm doing every single time. <laughs> and that's, um, and once I've cracked that, once on, on every project, once I've got into the flow, that's my favourite part of the project. That's my favourite part of what I do. You know, when, when creative collaborations are really working and everyone's very excited and the writing process is going well. You know, the actual composing is torturous and hard work for me, <laughs> but, I, but I also relish every moment because it makes me realise that I'm so lucky and grateful for being able to make a living out of music, really, uh, out of composing music. Um, so for me... Um, that is always a daily miracle. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's really nice, not nice, but it's, it's refreshing to hear you say, you know, when you start a project, you're kind of fearful that, that you don't know what you're doing on the project because obviously you've scored Oscar nominated documentaries, you're the IFM, IFMACA's Breakthrough Act of the Year. And yet so many composers struggle with imposter syndrome. So to, to hear you say, you know, even at your level, 
that is still a thing. It must be oh. it's nice to hear that. Oh, I don't know about my level, Johnny. I always think I'm <laughs> I'm still struggling and growing, and uh, uh, you know, I think and and it's refreshing for me when when I when I come across composers that I really admire and respect, and they say the same thing. And I think no matter yeah. where you are in your career, you know, I mean, for me personally, I'm always suffering from imposter syndrome, but uh, but somehow I think I think what I have managed to um, get through on every project is I know that it will work out in the end. You know, mm-hmm. I know that however hard it may be, um, I'll I'll get there in the end. Um, and there's a sort of a comfort in that knowledge. You know, sometimes every process, every project is different creatively, and and that's what I like about it. It keeps me it keeps me fresh and on my toes. Um, otherwise, I'd stagnate and that to me is is a far worse thing than um you know than well i mean i've never not not got through to the end of a project you know regardless of the deadline or the pressures so um so and and we all do you know it's just it's just part of what we do um uh, it's part of being um i think one of the traits of having to be a um a composer that manages to make a living out of what we do is is being professional and that means you know never never missing a deadline for me uh, no matter what I'll, you know what happens I'll always get there in the end such a key little piece of advice that <laughs> you you mentioned um your you treat every project like a learning experience like an opportunity mm. for you to find something else out and from what I know about your background and the music I've listened to of yours it seems like the projects you take on really reflect that too I mean in your catalog you've got Obviously, for summer, which is which is one locale and one um, subject matter, but then you've also got um, klezmik and sort of Yiddish music that you've written in a really authentic <laughs> style as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was quite. I mean, that that uh, strictly kosher was a yeah. TV series for um, ITV, I think. And the director. I mean, that that was a. It wasn't a nightmare at all. It was. It was. Uh, but it was in my mind. It was a huge hurdle to uh, to cross because I thought. The director came back from location and he gave me a pile of, he gave me a brief um, for the music. He said, this is a series about the um, uh, the Jewish community in, in Manchester. And he came back with a load of music and and temp stuff, not temp, but it's inspirational links to, to other s- styles of music. And he said, I really want authentic Jewish klezmer music. And I just... I just thought internally, I thought, oh, my God, you know, this is going to be really challenging on the budget that he's given me as well, which wasn't which wasn't a huge budget. So I thought the only so I um, so like all things, you know, I, I panicked for a day and then I and the way I get around my panic um, is to research. And I just chipped away at it and I thought, how am I going to handle this? How am I, how are we going to get through this? And the only way I just thought there's there's no way that I can use samples you know to get that authentic live organic sound there's there's absolutely no way I could use samples to replicate the the unique ornamentation and trills and and playing styles of these marvelous musicians so I analyzed a lot of uh Jewish klezmer music and and now I'm an expert in it (laughs) you know which is which is always great at the end of the project you know um and and it was a joyous experience because what I did was 
I put together a band. I put together, uh, I sourced four or five musicians, um, the top of the, you know, experts in that style and brought them into my studio one by one for overdubs. So I created MIDI mock-ups. Um, we were on a limited uh, time. Uh, I think I had about four, four weeks, I think, four or five weeks um, to create a whole a custom library of music. And that was the way we approached it. So I wrote different moods, different um, uh, emotions, uh, sort of upbeat, uh, energetic pieces to reflective, uh, melancholic uh, tracks right across the board um, from uh, based on traditional melodies, but I created my own versions of traditional tracks, uh, arrangements. And then I also sort of having immersed myself in that uh, in that style of music then wrote original music based on that uh, style and um, and structure and um, uh, brought in a clarinetist uh, Merlin Shepherd who's one of the UK's top uh, klezmer clarinetists, um, but he also plays lots of other wonderful Eastern European styles as well. Um, accordion, I did uh, piano myself. Um, I had brought in uh, my husband plays a double bass. Um, what else? Uh, violin. I brought in the, the Manchester, um, uh, the London klezmer quartet, and um, had violin as well. So, so a variety of instruments. And I wrote uh, MIDI mock-ups. Uh, using samples and then I brought the musicians in one by one to replace it and bring their own unique character and individualism to the um, to each piece of music and so I created a library of tracks for instance I'd record one piece at mid-tempo and then I'd record the same piece again at a faster tempo because um, I knew that having to pitch change or, or certainly change tempos of um, recorded musicians was not going to be easy. So I'd record in two different tempos to give me flexibility to be able to speed up and slow down samples if I needed to. Um, and then, uh, and I and I also structured the music in, like library music, actually. Um, you know, with each piece would have a start and a proper end, a proper start, and then I'd write in a modular way in blocks, so mm -hmm. that um, so that it would, it would be easy when I gave all the music to the edit team to work with, and they sent the rough cuts and the final picture lock back to me. I would be able to hack my own music up um, and make it work seamlessly so that it flowed when I had to re-edit pieces to picture. So, um, and that's a process that's stayed with me, you know, it's like in the early part of my career, you know, when I've had to do, I used to do that a lot where I had to write a lot of music before the edit. And that that's a really smart way of working and utilising, um, working on a lower budget uh, but still being able to create high quality uh, music, you know, with musicians so that I use the musicians very efficiently and I, mm -hmm. and I, you know, construct the tracks in a smart way so that the, um, the edit teams and the directors can really maximize the, um, uh, the quality of the music that they're getting. Right. And you said you've you recorded all the parts individually then, so they're not, it's not a, a live recording of the whole group. Yes, because I have wow. to, it's, I had to do it that way because I needed total flexibility in, in terms of editing and, and chopping up um, mm -hmm. musicians. And also when it came to mixing, I, I was able to create out of a full rich 
piece of music, a theme that I'd write, I was able to construct four or five different versions and different mixes that I would then give to the team so that, you know, if I had five or six elements playing, piano, bass, violin, clarinet, accordion, and so on, um, they could... Um, I, I could just give them the uh, the bass and the clarinet, you know, mix yeah. or the or the drums. I had a great uh, drummer who played uh, remotely as well for me, so live drums as well. And um, and it was huge fun, you know. I mean, it was a, <laughs> I was dancing in the studio a lot of the time <laughs> <laughs> because it's such joyous music to write. And the director, it, it's a bit of a risk because I said to the director, "Look, I'm not going. This is the kind of music I'm going to write, but I'm not." going to be able to give you music to um to approve beforehand because wow. it was all going to be live musicians but mm. i knew we had you know detailed discussions beforehand and we agreed exactly what i would be doing piece by piece in terms of emotions and and tempos and and, and moods and so i gave him about i wrote about 16 themes and out of each theme i managed to get four or five different variations so we're looking about a body of i don't know 70 i haven't got my maths right but 70 or 80 tracks to the editor to work with for the whole series. So wow. it was it was a it was a you know it was a it was an efficient way of working. But um yeah so it's that was that was a really interesting project <laughs> to work on. And now I, I love Jewish klezmer music and uh, <laughs> and you know I can I can write a wedding horror anytime. <laughs> yeah nice. I actually live in in Poland at the moment and oh, okay. they have there's there's a kind of new wave of, of klezmer music. It's really interesting. Like it's it's connected with like like dance music and uh, drum and bass and stuff. It's really amazing to get to to one of those um, yeah. gigs. It's it's a bonkers experience to have these like clarinets and accordions with this electronic dance music and everyone going mad for it. So you mentioned about your obviously you do your first stage. What the part you really enjoy about being a film composer is the research stage. Yeah. So how do you actually go about your research and learning these styles? Uh, on the internet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I I try to. Um, make the invisible visible. So I, I spent uh, I, I, the early part of my career. I before I became a composer, I was an assistant music engineer to Peter Gabriel, and so I was very much immersed in the mm. in world music, and that's stayed with me ever since. And and I I love taking musical instruments, sort of world music instruments out of context and manipulating and treating them and creating new new sound palettes and unique sound walls for each for each uh, project um, and so I guess I've been known for doing a lot of world music projects and and I still get involved in in those kinds of projects but um, in terms of research, I mean, my my way of overcoming writer's block is to research and mm -hmm. then I'll create parameters and, and briefs for myself to work within. So I will, in terms of making the invisible visible, I will avoid cliches. I don't like, to, unless a director or the project requires me to uh, embrace the music of a particular region, you know, Southeast Asia or or Japan or or, or South America, um, I'll I like to um, find musicians um, that don't normally do session playing sometimes and work to the strengths of their abilities. So, for example, I did a 
featured doc about three, four years ago called The Confessions of Thomas Quick. And it was a Nordic noir kind of thing set in Sweden. And I didn't want, and I discussed using hurdy-gurdies and nickel harpers <laughs> and hardhanger fiddles, sort of traditional uh, Scandinavian uh, Swedish instruments, uh, folk instruments. And I definitely sort of instantly dismissed them. Not that I don't like them, but I just didn't want to use that sort of cliched route in um in the score and so what i did was i I'd sort of i go to music festivals um uh, and i went to womex not womad but womex and uh, a few years back and i saw it's like a ma massive showcase from musicians all over the world and i found this I, I i saw the showcase of this fantastic accordion player from uh finland he um and he doesn't play the accordion in a twee melodic uh, European way like French or Italian music with little lovely little melodies he turns the accordion into a living breathing monster and wow. he uses the bellows of the instruments and it was like techno accordion <laughs> so it's just him on stage with stamping his feet and playing this sort of trance-like rhythmical um, massive sort of accordion playing and it's mesmerizing and amazing to watch visually and he creates this fantastic sound so that for me and it's something that i stayed with me i thought one day i'll find a project where i'll use uh this guy his name is anti palanen and uh, you can see his videos on youtube he's absolutely amazing to watch um and uh, and it's like bonkers sound and i remembered it sort of four years later i got this swedish film and i uh, thought he would be perfect for capturing the sound of this Swedish serial killer uh, and and the accordion was perfect for it and it was it was still an authentic Scandinavian sound but I took it totally out of context and mm -hmm. I used it in sort of very rhythmical ways with the bellows of the instrument and the, the mechanical wooden sound of the of the uh, accordion sort of breathing in and out and that for me represented um an aspect of the um serial killer and how he functioned so um so it's it's great to be able to sort of work with musicians who um who are great performers and artists and but um they uh they're known for being artists as opposed to just doing sessions really um i mean of course i work with amazing session players and and that's always great but i but i like to mix it up so i so i do my research in that way and also i'll research um styles of music different you know take different styles of music from all over the world and depending on what project i'm working on so every every project has its own sort of unique set of rules that uh, that are set to me by the director or the film or or our ideas that i'll come up with and are you researching sort of purely by ear or are you, are you looking at getting notation and really breaking down the harmony and the theoretical aspects of the music yeah, as well? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, you know, I mean, on, on every project, you know, I'll get given temp tracks or, mm -hmm. or um, I once did a film, natural history film for the BBC NHU, Natural History Unit, and the director came back from location with a pile of CDs and she'd been filming in South Africa and came back with African Zulu pop music. So I sort of analysed 
you know, I'll listen to music and I'll dissect it and de deconstruct it and, and, and work out what makes it tick in terms of instrumental palette, um, the structure, the harmonic uh, structure, the harmonic sequence, you know, just analyzing the music. Um, not always, not necessarily with notation, but, but, I, but I, I do do a lot of listening. I listen to, um, I mean, I like to listen to um, non-film music stuff because I find that listening to film scores all the time can be a bit, um, a, can drive you mad, you know, it's because everyone's <laughs> copying everyone else and plagiarizing Hollywood styles or other styles of film music. And I don't think that's necessarily a healthy thing. I love to listen to other styles of music. Um, mm -hmm. There's a great double bass musician that, that is just fantastic. He's from Israel and his name is Adam Ben Ezra, I think. And um, I just love his playing. And uh, I just think it's just very inspiring to listen to other music. But then when I'm actually writing, I don't like to listen to music uh, because I'm a bit of a musical sponge and I'll just soak up everything and it'll mm -hmm. find its way out. So I, so I tend... When I, a lot of the time I'm not listening to music, actually. I, I find it influences me too much. Um, so there was something that, um, there was an interview I read with someone who said that if you're going to plagiarize or, or be inspired by, uh, or if someone asks you to write um, music that sounds like someone else, come up with two or three, come up with three composers. Because if you're emulating one composer's work, then that's just straight out copying. And even mm -hmm. two composers' work, it's, it's plagiarizing. But when you have three influences in a piece of music, you can actually take elements of those three composers' works and make it your own and so that it's totally original and uh, no one will ever know. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. It's really similar to, there's a, there's a thing that I talk quite often about, which is from a jazz, from uh, how to learn improvising, which is imitate, assimilate, innovate. So you start by imitating, then you assimilate, which is obviously that where you look at a few composers and assimilate some ideas together and it's basically new before yeah, you get to real innovation. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I analyze and then deconstruct and then reconstruct. That's yeah. the way I like to put it. But it's it's a similar kind. It's the same thing, isn't it, really? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Great. One thing I'm really interested in, you mentioned the um, the Swedish accordion player, oh, sorry, Finnish accordion player, mm. and how you wanted to bring him on board for the film score. How did you go about notating or scoring or deciding the music for an instrument that doesn't really have notation for it, you know, because he's invented his own technique. Yes, yeah. Well, I mean, that, um, I work to the strengths of the musician's abilities and what. So if you try and take them out of their box and, and, and world and, and force them into like putting a square peg into a round hole, um, <laughs> it's, I love my analogies, yeah, um, uh, it's, uh, it's not going to work. And, I, and I've tried that before and it just, doesn't you just the results you get sound contrived and not very satisfactory so what I do is I listen to um like if I'm writing for a voice for example for a singer you know uh, or any musician um that's not used to that doesn't read notation I listen to a lot of their music and I and I make sure that when I get a musician on board they are the right person for the for the uh, for the project or for the type of music that I'm writing, otherwise, you know, I mean, it's sort of almost writing for them in a way. Um, mm. But so with this, with the Finnish guy, I um, wrote a lot of 
tracks and I and I knew that I wanted rhythmical beds on the accordion so I allowed him to do his own thing and I was very specific and I gave I gave instructions saying you know I'd like you to create a um, play a rhythmical part uh, a rhythm section over these points in these cues and then sometimes I'll give them total freedom and allow them to improvise around set parameters um i did that with a vietnamese musician i found in san francisco for a bbc series where um she's already created an album and collaborated with the chronos quartet in uh, who are an amazing uh, string quartet world-renowned string quartet and i listened to a lot of her playing and, and sort of analyzed it and and then i took <clears throat> uh, when i wrote the pieces um I sort of wrote backing tracks almost. And then I sent her the tracks and said, you know, I, I, I give rough guide melodies. And I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll always give guide melodies. Um, if I have musicians coming to my studio, which I always prefer, I, I don't really like to do remote sessions always. I mean, I do if I have to, if the musician is, is you know, hundreds of miles away. But I mean, I, I like to travel as well. So I like to go to musicians. I'll hire studios or I get them to come to me. And um, and that way, it's eye-to-eye -eye contact. That communication is so important where I'll actually, if they don't read music, read notation, I sing to them, I'll sing them what I want. And, and then I'll say, well, a little bit like this, a little bit more like that. So I give very, um, but I, but I also give them room to breathe creatively as well, because, um, you know, I don't want them to feel stifled creatively, because mm -hmm. if you try and push someone too much it, it's there's a lot of psychology involved when you're working with these kinds of musicians hmm. because uh, with any musician really you know I try to create a happy um, atmosphere warm vibe uh, and an atmosphere is really important in the studio to to get the most and that get the best out of someone's time you know even when I'm up against it uh, time-wise I think I'm paying a fortune for this and I've only got <laughs> three hours with this musician um, and uh, you know you you have to create um, uh, a cool atmosphere so that um, so that you can really vibe and I'll record a load of stuff and then create almost like a custom library sometimes and be able to sort of chop material up and integrate it into the score and um uh and and just create a lot of ideas you know i like bringing in musicians very early on as well which i've just done with a um uh my latest um feature which premiered at uh, sundance film festival and that so i worked on that for a year and but I was bringing in musicians very, very early on. And it's a bit of a risk doing that as well financially because mm. I'm spending money when I don't know if the director isn't going to like it or not. But mm -hmm. sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. And I think it's a, it's a risk and a punt that I that I take um, as well. So it sounds like there's, there's kind of a, a three-part process to your composing. You kind of create the sketches and the ideas for the composition bring musicians in to do all the recording. And then you have a third stage where you kind of deconstruct what you've recorded and create new cues from that. 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, I I do that whenever I can, when I have the time on a project. So I've been very fortunate in, I mean, this this last uh, film, The Reason I Jump, which will come out in UK cinemas later this year, mm-hmm. that, um, that was very much along those lines where I was doing experimental recording sessions, um, bringing in, uh, brought in a clarinetist and we did some prepared clarinet uh, recording and another saxophonist uh, who I worked with and uh, um, and uh, brought in Daniel Pioro who's Johnny Greenwood's violinist and he's mm. very used to working in this way with uh, Johnny so I I mean I just fell in love with his playing and he came highly recommended to me as well but, um, so so he came and we spent a day together and we were recording a whole bunch of stuff and I had three cellists there was a lot of cello in the score as well and so I was actually um it was like generative composing you know I I did a session with a with a cellist um friend of mine who uh we were writing music in the session but uh, it was a really fun way of working because I had prepared lots of pieces and she played on them and and I gave her notation and that was fine um, that was one way. But another way was I um, said, okay, you've got uh, six or seven notes of this piece of music and I'm going to tell you when to change note and where to go upwards or downwards by a tone. Uh, so <laughs> up a tone or down a tone. And so we would record layers of of cello and and I would direct her in the session just giving her hand signals and it was hilarious it was just a lot of fun <laughs> and she would play what I told her to play but she didn't know what I was going to make her do and and I would be listening back to we'd be both be listening back to uh, takes and uh, previous takes so we were just sort of play listening to what she'd done and then the next take and I'd have sort of like three four takes of cello doing sort of double time triple time different tempos and it was uh, and it created really really interesting results that have uh, ended up in the film so so there's that that kind of process um mm. and and which is really enjoyable but a lot of the time I don't get that opportunity as well so I'm having to work with just samples and mm-hmm. pure electronics and no live musicians which is always a shame because I I love I try to bring in at least one or two live players on every project I work on uh, it just makes such a difference or I'll play stuff myself or I'll, I'll sing myself um, I'll, you know I record a lot of my own vocals on this particular film score and um uh, but a lot of the time I'm working uh, with samples and then I'll bring in musicians right at the end of the process because I have to get music approved by the um, film team, which mm-hmm. is which is quite sort of normal as well. You know, I have to create MIDI mock-ups and then uh, get it approved, do changes endlessly uh, until they like the cue. And then once that's done and I've got the green light, then I can park it and get all the music in, in the film approved or the series approved and then bring in musicians right at the end and then spend a few days mixing Great. Uh, before delivery. Great. So can we talk a little bit about For Summer? Because the emotional content of that, the, the sort of female experience of war must have been really hard emotion like con- emotional content to work with yeah it was i mean johnny it was it was one of the hardest projects i've ever um worked on it was 
because because it's real <laughs> and yeah. it, it's true. And so I've never worked on a project where the producer and the filmmaker, is, who's actually she Wad, she's in the film. Uh, it's the the film is about her life and filmed wow. over five years, and she documented everything that was going on in her life uh, with the Syrian. Uh, uprising the Syrian civil war over a five-year period. And so she's then there as a co-director with Ed Watts, the English guy who was brought in to, to help out. So the two of them would, so I had two directors to keep happy, but also I'd have wired over my shoulders saying, Nanita, you know, I'd like the music like this or like that. And then I'm seeing her on the screen um, and she's the director and the camera woman. So that, so the responsibility was, I felt a huge responsibility on my shoulders to do justice to the film and her life story um so you know i said what whatever you want you'll get you know? <laughs> it was because you know it was it was quite a, a very emotional uh moving process as well so uh, the i was involved right from the beginning of the edit and uh the edit lasted for 18 months wow. and the funny the funny thing is when you watch the um, when you watch the film, which is still on Channel Four OD, I think, of <laughs> um, uh, you can watch it for free online. Uh, but when you watch the film and you listen to the music in the context of the film, you think. I mean, I, I look at it and I, I watch it and I think that took me 18 months to write. You know? <laughs> and and what people don't realize is the journey, the process you have to go through to get to that point. So in the early stages of the edit for the first three months, the director, Ed, said that he wanted a very uh, Hollywood rich uh, orchestral hybrid kind of score for okay. the film and so I wrote over 80 themes wow. um, um, and they were quite rich and big and he'd he'd laid on uh he laid in uh given me sort of reference tracks he said oh I like this score and that score and uh, I thought okay I'll listen to that and and sort of take on board that vibe and that feel and then um so I wrote all that and they was they started editing with uh, with the music and I gave them stems as well because the editor insisted on having stems so this was right from the very beginning and then after about three or four months of editing, we uh, paused. Uh, they had a pause in the edit. And the film was actually very different to how it is now. Um, it was it, The film just wasn't working narratively and structurally. And they weren't terribly happy with it. So, I mean, there was nothing wrong with the film, but it just wasn't, it didn't quite gel. So uh, eventually the decision was made to find out what this film is actually about. This film is about the relationship between a mother and a daughter, and it's a love letter telling her daughter, Sama, who's a baby at the time, why they decided to stay in Aleppo so long and why they eventually left this uh, when they were they had to leave because their lives were in danger. And when that decision was made to changed the film in that way the whole film became much more intimate and warm and it was like a character study a bit like a drama really um uh, where it became much more intimate and warm and of course when that happened 
the music that I'd written no longer worked. Mm -hmm. And so um, we had to, I mean, you know, and me as well, you know, I had to strip down the music and um, change the whole score entirely, almost entirely. And I wrote much more intimate themes and... That's when I brought in the this um, violinist uh, who, from Syria who's also a refugee because I felt that it was important to be true and authentic to the film and the story. And that's what I strive for on every project that I take on uh, is to to find the emotional essence, the, the core emotion of the story and represent that through the, through the music uh, because the music is like another character in the film. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, it's the music, I feel, has to tell you what's not being said on, in, in the visuals. You know, if you've got two actors on screen uh, and they're acting, you don't want to amplify, necessarily amplify the emotions. Um, I mean, I think one of the most successful pieces I've heard in a film or moments in a film I've heard uh, recently is, is Moonlight, mm. where the the um, the birth, uh, rebirth sequence in the water, uh, baptism sequence, sorry, where, you know, you hear Nicholas Brittell's theme coming through, uh, the, this op- violin opus, and it's just exquisite. And it totally confounds all the expectations of what you what uh, what you expect that film to sound like. Uh, it's a very different type of score, and so so that I mean that's just one example. So so with for summer, I um, went back to the to the essence of the film, and uh, this Syrian refugees violin playing is gritty and raw and dirty and edgy and it actually represents for me the aching heart of Aleppo the the city and what was happening to it at the time and once we'd cracked that every all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle fell into place and I think also silence is also important Mm. in in a film for me silence is music so where you choose not to have music is important it's not um it's not a shouty score it's not a score it's it's very minimalist and there there's a lot of bombing and shelling and and rough edgy sort of poor quality sound in the film because she filmed some of it on her mobile phone and on her handheld cameras and that all adds to the texture of the film but so with the music, we didn't. The, the scenes are so powerful and uh, very emotional that I didn't want to over egg it, and didn't we didn't want to over manipulate the audience mu- with music that was mm-hmm. melodramatic or over emotional because it was already there in the story, in the visuals, and in the scenes. So it was really a case of um, holding back and restraining. So I had these pieces of music that I was very proud of, uh, purely as standalone music. But at the end of the day, I had to serve the film and the film's needs and requirements. And so it was a long process trying to work out where to have music, where not to have music, trying different versions, trying different things, and then eventually settling on what we did uh, in the film. Uh, whether you think it works or not. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's there's one piece at the end, which is a huge 
the the culmination of the whole film. Uh, it's a four and a half minute song that I'd written, and uh, it, it was actually a vocal song with a with a Syrian famous Syrian singer. Um, but then in the end, uh, Wad said to me, "Nanita, there's this other piece of music that I that I grew up with. I would love a version, uh, our own arrangement of that for the end of the film." So I listened to it. Uh, there's a Syrian folk song on uh, on YouTube and I analyzed it and um, again I analyzed and uh, <laughs> dissected it and, and deconstructed it and then I brought my own um, elements to it and uh, it's acoustic guitar based and it's it, it's filled with hope and um, restrained hope really and uh, and hopefully you know it's as kind of a fitting end to wad's story and uh, the end of the film and it's it's very emotional because um you know when you experience and watch the whole film it's it's quite a an emotional roller coaster and so it's very it's filled with uh, bittersweet and uh, it's a very poignant moment and um uh, it 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 hopefully gets to you at the end of the film. So um, so that was a, so it was a long journey and it was a long process and um, uh, and I you know I mean uh, sometimes the score feels part of the soundscape as well. Mm. So there's there's one scene for example where there's a lot of bombing going on and there's there's a lot of uh, jeopardy and tension because they're traveling in an open top vehicle and there's you know, there's shelling going on around them and it's very dangerous. And originally I had written this almost like a Hollywood action cue, you know, <laughs> with lots of elements and it was really strong and dynamic and full of adventure and it was dark and tension. And then when we stripped it back, all you're left with in the film is one beat, drum beat. <laughs> wow. And uh, this sparse drum beat because the 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 thuddy beat is like almost sounds like the the bombs going off. Yeah. So sometimes you don't it's the music then becomes part of the soundscape and there's this thud of a tension, a, a sparse pulse that just carries you through and is is all part of the soundscape. So so that's, you know, it's it's about holding back and it's I think it's one of the hardest things to do it was one of the hardest scores to write um, is to because I had to hold myself back musically mm -hmm. and not think of my creative ego, but think about the film's needs and, and what the directors wanted. It just goes to show how important getting that tone right for the film really is. Yeah. And what you yeah. just said in the last 10 minutes, just in my opinion, is it sums up everything about film music, some of the things you've, you've talked about there. So absolutely amazing. And obviously... Must have worked because it's the most nominated documentary by BAFTA, Oscar nominated as well. A really great project. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it was just a very special project to be a part of. And yeah. I think I, I've never worked on a film like it. And uh, I don't know, or I don't think I ever will. Um, <laughs> you know, projects like that come come to you once in a in a generation. I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe more if you're lucky. Uh, but for <laughs> me, you know, it's it's been an utterly unique film to be a part of and um and it's just you know wonderful to see it resonate with audiences uh, i remember sitting i was very lucky enough to be able to go to the premiere at Cannes film festival last year and i sat there in the audience surrounded by people and 
people around, I was so close to the film, I couldn't see the wood from the trees because I'd been seen every shot a thousand times yes. you know, over, you know, over the last sort of 15, 18 months that I was working on it. And, and then I looked around me and people were crying and I thought, Oh, uh, that and 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 then it had standing ovations at the end. And and when you, for me, it's when when you see audiences and other people, um, res, you know, respond to a film emotionally. I think that's the. You asked me right at the beginning of the interview, what's the best bit? And I think it's not seeing my name up in lights or anything <laughs> like that. But but I think you know when you see. Uh, when you're able to share your music and share your work with the world and for people to respond to it in such a way is just the best feeling in the world because you think you know you've done something right. You know that you've reached people. Uh, I mean, I'm not a live performer. I don't get up on stage and perform my music. Um, I never have. And so this is the closest that I get to achieving that kind of emotion and feeling I think that live performers get to get yeah. that response from an immediate response from an audience is just the best feeling in the world and so you know for me you know working away on projects for weeks or months on end and then finally you can get it out to the world whether it's on television or on the radio or on in the cinema or, or in the theater you know and and when you see an audience respond to it and they you know if they're laughing in the right places in the film or or make you being able to make them cry, you know, that is why it makes me realize that's why I do what I do. You know, as uh, you know, I love the process and I love the creativity. Um, but then, you know, being able to share your music and or share your project or film, whatever, with the world uh, is just the culmination of all of that, that um, tough process that you may have been through. Amazing. Regarding your composition process as well, then, do you, you, you said on a lot of projects, you end up having to just use samples, and which obviously you try to avoid. But your typical process, do you um, notate, do you, sorry, do you create everything in your digital audio workstation and then send it off to orchestrators or orchestrate it yourself out to notation? Or do you work with notation? Um, well, the last two projects I do, I, I work in Logic Pro. It's, mm -hmm. it's just a tool, you know, I could use anything, Cubase. <laughs> or I actually started off using uh, Opcode Studio Vision, which uh, many of your listeners, I'm sure, will not remember or will know <laughs> of. But it was a re it's uh, made by an American uh, software company that no longer exists. And, uh, and then when they went out of business, I had chose Logic. Um, it was just, you know, it was just a simple binary decision, logic or Cubase, and I chose mm -hmm. logic. So I'll, rec I'll work in logic. I'll do everything in that uh, in that door. And then um, I will, if it's, I, if I bring musicians to my studio, you know, for overdubs uh, one at a time or uh, any orchestral plays, then I will create the notation in logic um, it's it's good enough for soloists mm. to come over, and uh, sometimes they'll even read the dots off the off the screen. Oh, you wow. know, I, <laughs> if I'm so up against it and I haven't had time to uh, even 
you know, I mean, I'll print out the music on the day during the session uh, here and there, or I'll make changes in the session. So, um, so we will work in a very organic way. And, um, and if it's anything bigger, for example, I think the most two recent projects I did. I did um, Telling Lies, which is an interactive movie stroke video game that came out last year. And mm-hmm. so for that, I wrote that with the London Contemporary Orchestra in mind with the with the LCO. And so uh, Hugh Brunt, who co-runs the orchestra, he actually was my orchestrator on that. But okay. I created very detailed MIDI mock-ups. So mm-hmm. every note that was that I had written en- ended up on the score. And that's the way I like to work. So I'll write a mock-up. And then I gave, uh, then I'll give the orchestrator the logic session. Um, if I, if I, if I have the time, if or rather, if I don't have the time, I may have an assistant who uh, would want to sort of clean up the um, clean up the session, uh, rearrange my messy arrange page, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'll try and color coordinate everything as well to make life easier when mixing. So. Um, we'll just, you know, I'll, I'll have that orchestrated and then prepped, uh, prepared, you know, with a copyist for the orchestra. So the LCO did that because they're a very, they're a very collaborative orchestra, um, unusual to most other session players for hire. Um, but with the, my last project where I used the BBC Now Orchestra, I brought in an orchestrator and a conductor. I don't want to conduct myself. I much prefer to be in the booth, um, in the, uh, control room, you know, li- using a different pair of ears to mm-hmm. listen to stuff creatively and, and technically as well. And I'll leave it to the, because conducting is quite an art. Um, mm-hmm. And even with an orchestrator, I, I'm very much in control of every note that I write. Uh, you know, I mean, I said on, on Untamed Romania, the BBC uh, National Orchestra of Wales played on that score. And uh, my orchestra, I would give my orchestrator my Sibelius, uh, my uh, logic session. He'll put it into Sibelius. He'll then send me back the first Sibelius uh, draft of his orchestration, and he'll suggest thing. He would suggest things like, um, I mean, my expertise. I'm not. I'm not an expert in lineups in terms of balancing the orchestra. So mm-hmm. I think mm, I'm not sure how many players do you think we need to achieve that sound. I didn't let my composition influence the um, orchestration if you know what I mean. I, I just, the, the music was the most important thing. And mm-hmm. and I knew that I had, I, I know at the offset what the lineup is going to be. So I knew that I had a 73-piece orchestra. So I wanted to make full use of each section of the orchestra when I was composing. I wanted to highlight the woodwinds because they always they always get forgotten and, <laughs> and and everyone focuses on strings and then maybe brass, but no one really pays attention to, uh, gives the woodwinds decent parts. So, um, so that was, so when I was composing, I was thinking about the players and that's really important to me. Um, so with Telling Lies, I knew I had 15, actually I thought I'd have eight strings uh, a couple of woodwinds, piano and a harp. But at the end of the day, my mock-ups were so rich um, that I ended up hiring 15 strings to... It was a... It was a 
I, I wanted to go full on on the live elements and mm. um, really threw the budget at it, uh, <laughs> full budget at it, as opposed to having to do a hybrid kind of, well, you know, ideally I'd need 15 strings, but I can't afford it. So I'll have eight strings and I'll blend it with samples. Sure. And so, and I still ended up um, blending the odd sample in here and there, actually, on on that score. So there are things that samples can do that string, uh, that, you know, live players simply can't and vice versa. So um, you can really hear, I think, you know, the living, breathing dynamics of the orchestra on the uh, on the big symphonic score. And when my orchestrator then came back with the first Sibelius um, orchestrations, I'd then make the odd comment and say, you know, and question things, say, do you think we really need that? Or, you know, maybe we should, he'd say, Nanita, I think we should be doubling up on the uh, on the um, lower, on the contrabassoon or that that kind of thing to get that kind of richness or, or balance. And um, he would then... Uh, go back and uh, tweak the orchestrations in Sibelius. And then once the Sibelius files had been approved, then that would go to the copyist for prepping and double-checking and triple-checking and making sure we had all the parts printed out and ready for the orchestral session. So it was a very much a to-and-fro process as I was writing. So it was quite a lot of, a lot of uh, elements of the process to, um, to juggle you know, while you're composing at the same time. And when you compose in your, in, in Logic, in, in, in your door, do you, um, do you have, have templates that you use or do you build new templates from scratch for every project? Yeah, I never, I never, I try not to use, well, actually I don't use templates. Mm. Um, I, every project has a new template. And even then what I do is I'll start, I'll get stuck in and write a piece of uh, music um, I'll, I'll spend, if I can, if I've got time, uh, hopefully I'll always, or I'll try and create time to spend at least a day, um, to three days listening to sounds, creating a template for a particular cue or a, or a big cue in, in a project. And then I will then use that as a template for mm -hmm. other cues or I'll start writing, put two or three cues in one logic session and then uh, copy that, create another logic session, write other cues and maybe add other elements to it. So I'll open up, I'll have a variety of cues that I'll open up um, at different stages of the project to create different cues and use use some as um, use existing cues as templates. Um, for example, if I've got a cue, there's there's a theme, and I want to write other variations of that theme, um, then I'll open up that main theme and use that as a template so that I can copy and paste parts as well. And I mean, I, t I tend not to copy and paste um, sequence MIDI parts, you know, within other cues, but I'll certainly use the sounds and um, you know, elements um, to uh, construct new cues out of it. So it's quite, it's a very much a, an evolving, it's not a, it's not, I know it doesn't sound terribly organized, but there is, <laughs> but there is a method to my madness on every project. And um, I'll start off with a new arrange page with nothing in it. I might use, I'm growing with track stacks now. Um, mm. I'm using track stacks more and more. So I'll have a 
string track stack of long strings or a short string tra track stack. So I have a variety of track stacks that are really, really useful and I'll just import them when I think, oh, this piece needs um, some strings and I'll and I'll bring them in. Um, uh, and so it's, it's a fast, easy way of um, enhancing the palette. Uh, just saves a few palette. extra clicks, doesn't it, of loading yeah, extra strings and sticking the reverbs on stuff like Absolutely. that. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Great. Well, there's. I've, this whole interview has been absolutely fascinating. Um, I've found some really interesting stuff out about your process and how you work. But to finish us off, would you have one piece of advice for someone hoping to get started as a film composer? Uh, one, one piece of advice? <laughs> Just one, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Most um, people give about 10 at this point, so feel free. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the one thing I've learned over the years is to develop I know it's it's you hear it all the time but it took me a long time to actually heed that advice which is to develop your own unique voice um I think that's you may have different several different voices um which I do um but I think it's important to know who you are musically and that that can take a while to find out and I think it's just a case of writing and writing and writing uh, and eventually you find your own tastes and what you grab I find that I gravitate towards certain harmonic uh, changes you know um, I may gravitate towards um, certain chord sequences um, or certain types of sounds that I have a preference for. And so, uh, and that, that helps to form your own musical voice. And I, and also, you know, something I said at the beginning is to never stop learning. I'm always just be curious and, uh, every project is a creative challenge. And I think that's what keeps us on our toes, well, me on my toes creatively. Um, uh, I, I don't like to repeat myself too much now. You know, I like different types of uh, different, different styles and different types of music on every project. Um, be collaborative and, and learn from other people. I, I, you know, I think just be open-minded, um, develop a thick skin, it, I mean, even now, you know, it's very easy to take rejection personally and we're always, you know, rejection happens to all of us on a, on a daily basis with clients, directors not liking or not thinking that the piece of music you've written is working for them. It's, it's not a, a good or bad thing. It's just your, I've learned that I have to serve the director's vision and I have to serve the needs of the film, but also come with ideas as well. You know, um, quite often I get asked um, to input my own ideas on a, on a, to a project. And that's great when you're really valued and I feel part of the film team. So when people ask me what what industry I work in, I say I work in the film industry or the film and TV industry, not, not uh, I don't work in the music industry because I see myself as a storyteller. So it's all about being part of a team and being collaborative and coming with enthusiasm and passion and and musical ideas creative ideas um you know i mean if if they're not if they don't want you to if they want you to follow the temp and uh and uh and not come with a strong concept that's fine but try and make make it your own you know mm. don't don't and, and never copy the temp 
<laughs> Literally, that's a very dangerous thing. I always yeah. fight to uh, say to um, to filmmakers, you know, to not um, please don't give me temp, don't fall in love with the temp. You know, it's yeah. it's a it's a very and so that's why I like to come in early on board projects because that way. I'll write lots of ideas and give it to them to temp with. And that way, right. if they're going to fall in love with your music, they'll fall in love with your with your own original music and not yeah. with not with some other composers' uh, tracks, which is which is a, a healthy thing. Great. Well, like I say, that's been an absolute masterclass. So thank you so much once again, Nanita. Thanks, Johnny. It's been, uh, thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate <laughs> it. Great. Thank you. Take care. Thanks. <laughs>